Thank you for sharing them with us. True Israel, we enter into Romans 9. 9 through 11 is a section where Paul is dealing with a lot of struggles concerning his kinsmen, his fellow Jews. We know Paul's resume from Philippians 3, that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, keeping the law meticulously. And yet when he came to know Jesus Christ after that experience on the Damascus Road, he says, I consider all of that uh, dung, the manure pile, in order that I might know Christ. And he said that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, having fellowship with his sufferings, being conformed to the image of his, of his death. And so in Romans 9, we began our journey into this challenging chapter of Scripture. And Paul, leaving the heights of Romans 8, tells us of the sorrows of his heart towards his fellow Jews. He said in verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. And Moses spoke similar words in Exodus 32. But Jesus died that he might pay the price perfectly. But Paul is burdened about the whole question of Israel. And maybe you are too. How are we to understand Israel today? The global crisis in the Middle East has been a recurring news headline on the pages of history. Conflict in the Middle East. Crisis in the Middle East. Tumult in the Middle East. It's just a, a constant stream of conflict in the Middle East. How should I regard, how should we as Christians regard Israel? Are they the people of God or not? Well, I would say um, very succinctly that they are an apostate people. Israel is a non-covenant keeping people and they have no special status with God as a disobedient people. Not only have they rejected Jesus Christ, their long promised Messiah, they no longer keep the old covenant anyway. God is not working on two tracks. He's not working on an Israeli track and a, and a Christian track. There's only one flow of God's covenant promises, and that's through the new covenant, Jew or Gentile. So how should we regard Israel? As we look at the past, and I put in your insert two well-known scriptures from the Old Testament, Exodus 19, right on the eve of receiving the Ten Commandments, God says to them, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and did they ever? And how I bore you on eagles' wings. You didn't have a chance against their might and brawn. And I brought you out. I brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, Moses. So in Exodus 19, God gives a condition. If you obey my covenant, if you keep, obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my people and I will be your God. How do they do with that? Not well, all the way through, even to the point as you trace all the covenant promises of God through the Old Testament to Jesus Christ, 
They, he came unto his own. Jesus came unto his own. He came first to the nation of Israel, and by and large, they rejected him out of hand. There's another scripture I put in your insert that might help, and that's Deuteronomy 6, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, where God says through Moses, for you are a people, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it, had, it was not because you were more in number than any, any of the other people that the Lord your God set his love on you and chose you, keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery But notice that it wasn't because you were the greatest people. It wasn't because you were the most gifted people. It was because I loved you. I called you to myself. This is sovereign election. And so as we look at Israel's past, it is one filled with the blessing of God. And I'm thankful. And the way we should think of Israel is I'm thankful and grateful for Israel and God's use of them And I think Christians should embrace a humble gratitude towards Israel and should pray for Israel that their hearts would be open to the goodness of Christ and see him for who he is. And that all the privileges that he mentioned in Romans, and I'll review again in just a moment, um, that we are the beneficiaries of these promises through Jesus Christ. What about Israel in the present? I know that God hates anti-Semitism. He hates hatred of the Jews, and we should too. So any negativity that I've mentioned towards Israel in the opening of the sermon is only a statement of fact, but a a humble and grateful attitude towards uh, the nation, the people, and God's future plans for them. We should oppose and reject out of hand the hatred of anybody. Jesus said, we're even, to, we're even to love our enemies. So I know God hates anti-Semitism, and we should too. Israel has a right to exist and to defend themselves, and what happened on October 7th is pure, un- unmitigated evil by Hamas upon the Israeli people. He also hates any mistreatment of Palestinians by Israel. And so our prayer for both Israel and Palestine and all the nations of the earth is that God, your spirit would be moving in such a way that you're drawing men and women to yourself. As the church of Jesus Christ, we should pray and proclaim the gospel to Jew and Palestinian and Gentile like us that the purposes of God would be built up. So past Israel has a glorious past with lots of privileges Present is met with difficulty and struggle. What about the future? Is there a future plan for Israel in light of these incredible promises? Is God done with Israel? I don't think so. I think that's the whole purpose of Romans 9 through 11. Romans 9 through 11 speaks of a future in gathering of Israel. Look with me at chapter 11. Romans 11, we'll come back to 9, I promise. But in Romans 11, 25 and 26, Paul is explaining what's happened. Israel rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They were cut off. 
Gentiles were grafted into this olive tree of God's redemption. And notice verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. What does that mean? Well, since the time of Christ to now, by and large, with few exceptions, Israel has rejected Jesus Christ. It's wonderful to see a Jew, an Israeli, see the promises of the Old Testament fulfilled in Christ. One of my pastors in my Christian life when I was in college, he, um, he used to share the story about this Jew who came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, a completed Jew in that sense. And he would practically go into orbit whenever pastor read from Isaiah 53, which is the suffering servant passage, uh, that he was, uh, by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he would practically leave his pew in uh, exaltation to God for his fulfillment in Christ. He saw that Christ was the fulfillment. So there's a partial hardening that's come upon Israel back at Romans 11:25 until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So here we have an understanding of history that God has the Jews have 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 been set aside by the rejection of Christ. The Gentiles have been brought in, which we're so thankful for. And he speaks here until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and in this way all Israel will be saved. So what do I see in Israel's future? That there's a coming, a, a, a future where Israel will be brought in to, the, by, to saving faith in Christ to the amazement of the world. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul, Paul's closing reasoning here, I believe, should be understood as showing how God will, in the future, bring such widespread salvation to the Jewish people that in an obvious general sense, it can be said that all Israel will be saved. So yes, there's a future for Israel in Christ. And this seems likely because as you follow chapter 11, Paul speaks of, of Israel as an ethnic group. So as we look at what his burden is here, how are we to understand these promises in light of their rejection? And really what he's getting to is this question. Has the word of God failed? Think with me for a moment. For those who've been through this journey through Romans 8, and we've seen these incredible promises, nothing could separate us from the love of God. God's for us, who could be against us? God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that we might, how, how will he withhold anything from us in light of that? And on and on and on it goes, these incredible promises. Then we, we, we just get hit with this seemingly wet blanket of concern and burden about Israel. And then we, we take a step back and we understand what he's thinking. Well, if they have all these covenant promises and God has been good to them and delivered them and said to them, you will be my people, I will be your God. And now they're lost. What about us with regard to Romans 8? Can we believe these promises? Is God's, has God's word failed? The Apostle Paul begins Romans 9 by expressing this grief Warren Wearsby observed, 
that Paul moved from the joy of Romans 8 into the sorrow and burden of Romans 9. When he looked at Christ, he rejoiced, but when he looked at the lost people of Israel, he wept. So Romans 9, 6 is really the the verse I want to hone in on for our remaining time. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So, We remember first, if you're following along in the insert, privileges left in the rubble of unbelief. Incredible privileges. If you had walked in the wilderness and seen the manna fall and the miracles that God performed and how he sustained them, I mean, to go 40 years without your clothes wearing out or your shoes wearing out, (laughs) we can't make it a year. God sustained them in every way. And not only that, they saw the miracles and yet they died in unbelief. What we find here in Romans 9, it showcases the sovereignty of God, but it really is the Apostle Paul's explanation of why the Word of God has not failed and why the Word of God will never fail. I think of Isaiah 40. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God shall stand forever. And certainly as it goes regarding his chosen people, Israel, um, with few exceptions, um, they have not believed in the Lord. So the sovereignty of God's grace is presented as the foundation of God's faithfulness in spite of Israel's wholesale rejection. Maybe you've heard that term used often around here, the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God. I think that's an important, that's a huge doctrine. It's beyond important. It's vital to understand that the Bible presents God as sovereign. What does it mean? It refers to the unlimited power of God. It speaks to him, to his sovereign control over the affairs of nature and history. The Bible declares that God is working out his sovereign plan of redemption for the world and that the conclusion is certain. We don't read the Bible and, gee, I wonder what's going to happen. Now, we don't know the details between now and then, and we don't know the time. Jesus said, if anybody says they know the time, ignore them. They don't know what they're talking about. But we know who's in control of history and who's in control of the future. The Bible declares that God is working out his sovereign plan of redemption. The story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation and is ongoing through the preaching of the gospel and the work of his church is possible only because... The sovereign God loves the created world. God loves sinners and is calling sinners to himself through Christ. Without the sovereign love of the Father ministered to us through the Son and the Holy Spirit, there would be no real human freedom and no hope of everlasting life. We would never go to him on our own. The believer who doesn't live in the confidence of God's sovereignty will lack God's peace and be left to the chaos of a troubled heart. But our confident trust in the Lord will never allow us to thank him, or will allow us to thank him rather, in the hardest of trials. So how is God's sovereignty seen in Israel's failure? What good are promises of Romans 8 if Israel's failure speaks to God's promises being flawed or powerless? I mean, maybe you might even be thinking here this morning, what hope do I have of making it to the finish line? And it is because we have a sovereign God who is powerful, who has promised to be with us and in us and to take us into his very presence. 
Romans 9 deals with this dilemma. In verse 3, Israel is under the cloud of judgment. It's, if Israel is cut off, what about God's promises? And then throughout Romans 9, coming after Romans 8, we're reminded that we need God even more. So what are these privileges left in the rubble of unbelief? He mentions adoption. We as believers are adopted in Jesus Christ. He mentions the glory, the Shekinah glory of God. He mentions the covenants, the Mosaic covenant, the law of God, which he says is good in chapter 7 of Romans. The giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob repeatedly mentioned throughout the Old Testament of God's promises to them. In fact, look at Romans eleven twenty eight. Paul says in Romans eleven twenty eight, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. God freely chose Abraham. He freely chose Isaac. He freely chose Jacob. I think of Abraham, who was a, a star-gazing moon worshiper in Ur of the Chaldees. And I mean, how else does he leave everything familiar to him and go to the land that God chose him apart from God's call and God's grace in his life? He was not in Ur thinking, you know, I really would like to start a new religion. And by golly, I'm going to take it. I'm going on a pilgrimage and I'm going to start a new religion. That's not it at all. God came to him and called him and he responded to God's call to establish the people of Israel. And ultimately, this would lead to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. John Piper said, we need the Old Testament to sober us about how holy God is. And we need the New Testament lest we despair. A greater privilege is hard to fathom. The Messiah came. Jesus came. But to as many as received him, God has given the sons of God, uh, eternal life through his name. These privileges are enjoyed by an elect remnant of Israel now. So what does it mean when it says in verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. God never promised that all natural born descendants of Abraham would be believers. That's, that's the resolve there. Not all who are ethnic Israel are the true spiritual Israel. These privileges apply to a believing remnant. That's why he would say in chapter 11, he references Elijah who says, I'm the only one left. No, you're not. I got 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. I've always got a remnant, Elijah. I've always ha- I always have a, a remnant. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Romans 11.7. So these privileges will belong in full and saving measure to all ethnic Israel in the future time that God has established. There's coming a day when the veil will be lifted from the Jew and they will see the promises of God in Jesus Christ. So these privileges were left in the rubble of unbelief. Now think about the privileges you have. What do you mean? You've got a Bible in your lap or accessible to you. You can go online and study anything of Christian doctrine you want to study to the deepest level you want to study it. You've heard the gospel for years and years and years and years. 
Some of you have grown up in Christian homes, and we live in a day where you trash Christian homes. You, you, we live in a day where you trash the church. There's nothing redeemable about the church in many minds of our culture. That's a, pre- that's a precious privilege to hear the word of God. I, I was invited to speak to our Awana group Wednesday night. It was a joy. 10 and 11 year olds. And I get to share my, I was asked to share my testimony. They often hear me behind this box, <laughs> this desk. Um, but to be with them for a few minutes on Wednesday night. And I said to them, listen, this is our prayer for you. Those kids, those children and youth growing up in this church, this is our prayer for you. That as you look back on this time in your life, you would have happy memories. Maybe not over the length of the sermon. <laughs> Maybe not over some aspect. This is a, we're a flawed community. Let's just be honest. That's, but that's why we need a, a savior. But you would look back as you get to be 20, 30, 40, 80, it, it, if God lets you live to be 100, that you would look back and say, I remember that church. Those people loved me at that church. They taught me the Bible at that church. They pointed me to Jesus Christ at that church. And I'm a believer because of their deposit in my life. They're nurturing my life. To God be the glory. And I pray that we would remember those privileges. Privileges left in the rubble of unbelief may not be true in your life. Notice secondly, did God's word fail regarding Israel? Let's come back to this question. In Romans 9, there's an issue that Paul is anticipating. Those whom God has chosen to save, God can make it happen. He comes and intervenes and he redeems and he brings life and hope to those that are lost. Did God's word fail regarding Israel? And he says in verse 6, no, it didn't fail. And this is is Paul's focus in this chapter. And we're going to come to some mind-stretching, mind-blowing concepts in Romans 9. But I pray that we would see God in all of it, and it would strengthen our faith. Paul answers, no, it didn't fail. Thomas Schreiner says that just because you came from the descent of Abraham is no guarantee that you're a child of God. From the very beginning, there was a winnowing process in which God called some to be his children and not others. That's just a fact. In verse 6, Paul launches into an explanation of God's unconditional election and divine sovereignty over human self-determination and human willing. We've spent a lot of time in Romans looking at the human state, the human condition. There's not one of us who seeks after God or wants him. And apart from God's intervention, his redeeming grace, we would never come to him or want him. So he says, not all physical Israel is true Israel. In other words, the word of God has not failed because the promises were not made to all ethnic Israel in such a way that secured the salvation of every individual Israelite. Many perished, most perished in unbelief in the wilderness. And how do, I t- how do we take that away? Well, you know, what, will I perish in unbelief? Here you are, February 25th, 2024, another opportunity to hear the gospel Another opportunity to respond to the grace of God in your life? And will you respond this day? 
Not all physical descendants of Abraham are the beneficiaries of his covenant promises. And so he says, no, God has not denied his word. So he mentions here the children of promise in verse 8. The children of promise are counted the offspring. Who are they? And then he takes us on this journey, and I'll offer this by way of preview. Verse 11, he illustrates Jacob and Esau. Remember their story? The twins in Rebekah's womb. He confronts us with the ultimate sovereignty of God in choosing who the, child, who the children of promise, who the child of promise would be. He would say, the older will serve what? The younger. And in chapter 11 of Romans 9, for though the twins were not yet born, so they're in the womb and God's making this decision. Not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to election would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. The older will serve the younger. Before they did anything good or bad. This is completely unconditional. Please understand this about your salvation. It's not because of anything intrinsically appealing to God within you that you're a Christian. There was nothing intrinsically appealing to God about Jacob at all. He was a liar, a cheat. We never would have picked him. That's one of many reasons why we're not God. But God, God chose him. God set his favor upon him. All Jacob was good at doing was deceiving other people. It's completely unconditional. Not because God saw some island of humility within Jacob. He didn't see it. Nor in you. At all. Not because God foresaw faith in one and not the other. Oh, Jacob, I see him in there in utero. He's going to believe. Because all we respond with is doing things our own way. Otherwise, we could boast about it. I'm a Christian because, you know, I was just a little more in tune. I was a little more humble. You know, all of that is out of bounds. The text says before they did anything good or bad, it wasn't based on their track record. In this passage, Paul brings up the issue of God's justice. And that's where I suspect many are this morning, you know, God's justice. What shall we say then? Is there any injustice on the part of God? No. Verse 15 says, he will have mercy and compassion on whom will have mercy and compassion. So then it depends not on human will, verse 16, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It sounds like, Pastor, you're really wanting us to see that our salvation is about God's grace given to us. There you go. There you have it. Now, this is obviously a controversial subject. And when we're reading the Bible together and studying the Bible together, I understand the problems with this and the struggles with this. But ultimately, my desire is that you and I would be trying to resolve the tensions that we find in Scripture between God's sovereignty and our responsibility within the text of Scripture. And if you're studying the Bible and seeking to understand it in light of that, that's, that's, that's what I'm longing for. But I fear that many in the church have never, ever heard a a series of sermons from Romans 9. Ever. 
and are never challenged with the depth of what's being said here. So we're going to set aside some time and faithfully work through it the best we can. It's God's mercy that's on display. His sovereignty is on display. Now, you might be saying, well, if God is sovereign in this way, and God is the ultimate decider with regard to salvation, um, you know, what, what difference does it make? What difference does it make if we pray? What difference does it make if we share the gospel? What difference does it make that we support missionaries and send missionaries? Well, I think it's possible to ask questions that don't lead us to biblical answers. And those questions are not helpful because they don't bring forth a a biblical answer. And those questions assume something the Bible says is not true. Now, I want you to just note with me for a few more minutes before we come to the table. That within this section, Paul, who has just told us about God's unconditional election, is burdened for the salvation of Israel. Right? He's praying for their salvation. In fact, look at chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So any view of election or predestination or foreknowledge that somehow says it doesn't matter whether you pray, it doesn't matter whether you worship, uh, uh, witness or, or support missionaries or do anything else in the Christian life is, is saying something the Bible says is not true. Because here you see Paul saying, it's my burden my heart's desire and prayer. Not only that, he gives evangelistic appeal. He says in verses 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you shall be what? For whoever calls on the name of the Lord in real time shall be saved. The well-meant offer of the gospel. In chapter 15, talking about a missionary spirit, He says in verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing. And then he says, it's my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has been named before. That's missions. (laughs) Missions exist because people don't know the Lord and we're mandated by our Savior to take the gospel. In Romans 15, verse 23, I have longed for many years to come to you. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Why are you going to Spain, Paul? Because there's people over there who have never heard the gospel and I've got to go tell them. And he was so wired that I don't don't want to build on another one's foundation. I want to go where Christ has never been named before. And there I want to preach him and call men and women to faith in him. There's no whiff of fatalism. Not a whiff of fatalism. But doctrines held in tension, and they should fuel prayer, and fuel evangelism, and fuel missions. That's what they should do, and anything other than that is disobedience. So has God's word failed? No, it has not failed. Privileges left in the rubble of unbelief, God's word has not failed. And then let me close with this, natural Israel doesn't mean true salvation. And let me, I'll lead us right into our application on this. Just because you came from the line of Abraham doesn't mean you're, you're, you're saved. Just because you come from a Christian family doesn't mean you're saved. Or your daddy was a deacon. Or your mother taught whatever. Or led whatever. 
We're not saved by our heritage. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And the true Jew, the true Israelite, is one who's not one outwardly, but a, a Jew is one inwardly, Paul said in Romans 2, 28 and 29. How do I know if he wants me to be his? How? Well, here would be some things I would be considering in the preaching of the gospel and trying to understand what God has done through Christ. Do you sense the weight of your sin? And how it separates you from God? Are you sick of all the halfway measures and efforts that you've brought to the table to try to alleviate the burden of your sin and to be successful in this life? Do you sense your need for salvation and redemption? Do you believe that Christ died for your sins and rose again from the dead? Are the promises of God compelling to you to where you hear them and you say, I want that. Do you want to call upon him here and now to be your Lord and Savior to come into your life and to receive him by faith? If you call to him, he will in no way cast, cast you out. If these are your desires, you have good reason to believe that his good news has come to you. And you need to repent and believe and trust in Christ and walk and follow him. Natural Israel doesn't mean true salvation. You must be born again. So how does this apply to us in the, in the local church? I've been saying I'm going to close here. I'm really going to close here. <laughs> really. Here, here's the application. Nominal Christianity is a deadly delusion. Like Israel, many rested on the fact that they were from Abraham and they didn't need to worry Nominal Christianity is a deadly delusion because it's kind of viewed like an inoculation when you were five and you got the shot in the arm and you don't ever worry about polio anymore or any of those other diseases because you got the inoculation. And a lot of people view salvation that way. I went through the format of the church and I don't have to worry about whether I'm saved or not anymore. That's not a picture we ever find in the New, the New Testament and it leads to compromise in, uh, in truth and really cultural compliance to live a, a compromised life. You know, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't vape or go with girls who do those things. I'm not like those bad people. You know how they are. I'm not like that. I go to church. My dad said, keep your nose clean. You know what he means. Nominal Christianity is deceptive and deadly because it compromises devotion and love for Christ for worldly applause. It brings about compromise of conviction when it's no longer convenient. It brings about Compromise and personal purity and money and marriage. I read this week, one of the worst things a follower of Jesus can do is start dating someone who doesn't care anything about Jesus Christ. Amen. And that along with a host of other decisions in the Christian life, what does it really matter? 
And then finally, we need to distinguish between cultural Christianity and true Christianity. And that brings us back to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And our need for self-examination. Scripture repeatedly calls us to self-examination. That's the whole point of Romans 8 and 9. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, once said, Be as speedy in your repentance as you would have God to be in His mercy. What a great call to come to the table. That we would be speedy in our repentance as we would have God come to us in his mercy. And so let's come to the table. Jared's going to lead us this morning. I want to ask the deacons to come and to help him and for us to prepare our hearts as we remember the Lord's death on the cross and his resurrection. Thank you.